Right now, we're studying uh, some passages out of the book of Isaiah as it relates to Christmas. It's maybe a little bit of a different take on Christmas and what Christmas might look like to understand uh, all of these prophecies that, that Isaiah gives. Isaiah lived uh, seven to 800 years prior to Jesus being born. And yet Isaiah miraculously, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God came upon him so that he made prophecies about the Messiah, Jesus, who is coming. And what's incredible is that all of those predictions came true perfectly. So I'll tell you what, let me pray. And then we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to start in chapter 9. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. And thank you for uh, your grace to us through him. Um, Father, as we see in the text this morning, you're a God who shows great grace to people who are in darkness. You show light to those who need it. And you do it through your son, Jesus. And what's incredible is that your grace is without end. It's without limit. I pray you'd teach us those things this morning, that you'd um, let our hearts be in awe of those things this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uh, speak to and through me as I teach your word, um, that Jesus might be magnified and lifted up and glorified, and uh, that our hearts might be changed in a way that we adore him and live for him more and more. We thank you for Jesus. We pray too against the evil one who takes your word and twists it and distorts it. He's an accuser and a liar. And he would love nothing more for us than to forget all about your son coming as we celebrate Christmas. So instead, teach us and give us a sense of awe of who he is and of your grace. Father, I pray all this through Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. We'll read through verse 7 together, and then we'll come back and unpack some of this. Verse 1. Isaiah writes, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder The rod of his oppressor you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts 
will do this. If you were to look at that whole passage and say, what's the most important line in the whole passage? What do you suppose it might be? I would contend with you that it's the last line. That the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. A lot of times at Christmas, we think of Jesus as little Jesus, meek and mild, right? Just a little babe. And, and, and was he meek and mild? Absolutely. But it's not the whole picture because Jesus was also incredibly fierce and awesome and is to this day. And he's incredibly powerful and courageous. And Jesus, we negate who he is if we only look at the meek and mild part and forget that he was zealous for the glory of God and he is zealous for his own glory. And so when we look at the babe in a manger, that's only part of the story of who Jesus is because he's also incredibly zealous. And notice in these promises, we're going to unpack what all this is about in Isaiah chapter 9, why Isaiah's writing this, who he's writing it to. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I want you to see right from the beginning that everything that happens in this passage and everything that happens in the prophecy that's fulfilled by it, it's all accomplished not by the people he's writing to and not by us, but by Jesus Christ. The zeal of the Lord will do this. God is the one who accomplishes it. God is the one in the same way who accomplishes our salvation. That's going to be a theme this morning. That it's all by his grace and it's not by you and it's not by me, but it's all by Jesus. And one day when Jesus does return, when Jesus does come back to fulfill everything that's promised of him and everything that he's going to do to to restore all of creation back to the way it's meant to be. And he sets up his throne on this earth and rules and reigns. We're going to look at each other and we're going to go, this has nothing to do with us. This has nothing to do with us. All of this goodness, all of this grace, everything that's great today, Jesus did it. And we'd be wise to take the same approach to life today. See, Isaiah 9 prophesies the coming of Jesus as light shining in the darkness. As light shining in the darkness. You ever been in the dark and you flip the light on? What happens? You're like blinded. Like, what just happened? The the, the darkness just suddenly hides from the light, doesn't it? And the light comes in and light always conquers darkness. Well, in the same way, when Jesus comes... Isaiah prophesies the coming of Jesus is like light shining in darkness. And and he makes it clear. God makes it clear in this writing, in this prophecy, that it's all because of his grace, not because of us. It's the zeal of the Lord of hosts who will do this. Well, what that's called is grace. When we receive something we don't deserve. Grace is this. Grace is, in a nutshell... You've heard that word before, right? In and out of church at all. You've heard the word grace. Even if not, you've heard churches speak of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. That's the best way to describe what grace is. And, and the reason I say it's unmerited favor is it's grace is something when I get something that I don't deserve. When you get something you don't deserve. God shows us grace when he shows favor to us. But the thing is, we don't deserve any of that favor. He shows it to us because he's good, not because I'm good. 
I can't do anything to make God love me more. I can't do anything to make him love me less. When he shows me his grace, it's all about him that he shows it to me. So grace is unmerited favor. And we're going to see God's grace in a powerful way in Isaiah chapter 9 today. We're going to see his grace shining as a light in the darkness. And when you think of grace, sometimes there's another piece of it too. Think of it as a coin. You ever had a coin? And you flip it over, there's two sides to a coin, right? Well, if you think of it this way, that with grace, one side of the coin of God's salvation of us, of what the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish, one side of that coin is grace. And grace, in a nutshell, unmerited favor, but sometimes maybe it's easier to think of, it's getting what I don't deserve. Grace is getting what I do not deserve. You'll see it here in a second. I think it's coming. Getting what I do not deserve. That's grace. Now, when you take that coin and you flip it, on the flip side of that same coin is a thing called mercy. And mercy is just the opposite. When I don't get what I do deserve. What I don't get, what I, when I don't get what I do deserve. And grace and mercy together are one coin. They're, they're the same idea. And you can't have God's grace without his mercy. And you never see God's mercy without his grace. And so as we read here, you might, we might read some things and you go, that's not God's grace. That's his mercy. And I would say, yeah, and in his mercy, you're going to see grace. And in his grace, you're going to see mercy. All of it is getting what we don't deserve and not getting what we do deserve. And that was for the case for the people in Isaiah's day. And we're going to see that God shows his grace to us when we're in darkness through Jesus without limit. Let's look back at the text in verse 1. But there will be no gloom, Isaiah writes, for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, when I became a Christian and I started reading the Bible and I didn't know a lot about the story, I'd read some of these things. And there's, I'll be honest with you, there's still times today when I read some things and I go, What's, what are they talking about? And I have to refresh my memory or I have to study and figure out what was being said there. And when we read this, we know the part, you know, uh, for unto you a child is born, unto us a son is given. We know that part, right? You've heard that. But what's this whole deal? Like, why is this here? Who's Zebulun and who's Naphtali? This sounds like a weird sci-fi movie all of a sudden in the middle of Isaiah. What's going on? Well, let me give you a little bit of background. If you were here last week, you know that during this time, Ahaz is king of Judah. And Isaiah is prophesying to Ahaz, and in, in chapter 7 is where we were last Sunday. We saw where, where Isaiah gives a prophecy that this will be a sign to you. A, a baby will be born to a virgin, and you'll call his name Emmanuel. God is with us. Well, Ahaz was given opportunity after opportunity to, to select a sign from God that God would preserve him. Because Ahaz, we found out, was incredibly scared along with the rest of Judah because coming from his north was Israel, the ten northern tribes, and Syria, trying to get him to fight with them against Assyria, who was coming in to conquer the land. And he was scared, but God said, no, listen, this, th- their plans aren't going to happen. You're going to be just fine. Just trust me. And Ahaz doesn't. 
And he refuses to. And so God gives him a sign and eventually that he's going to head off into exile as well. But or, or Judah will head off into exile as well. But you need to know what's happening. The context is that there's an Assyrian army coming from the north that's going to conquer the land of Israel. So let me show you this, what this looks like on a map. This is the Middle East, right? Today, this is area of Iraq and Saudi Arabia would be down here. And Israel is this little sliver right here. Let me put a box around it for you so you know where it is. Well, Assyria is up in this area. And when Assyria comes to conquer Israel... First off, here's why they're coming to conquer them. God told them, when you go into the land, if you obey me, things will go good. If you disobey, I'm pulling you out. Things will go bad until you repent. Well, they had been evil. They had been wicked. And the 10 northern tribes of Israel who had been wicked were about to pay the penalty for their sin. They were about to face God's discipline. And he's going to do it through Assyria. Later in Isaiah, Isaiah calls Assyria the rod of furious wrath, that he uses Assyria to come and show his discipline to his people in Israel. Well, when Assyria comes to conquer and Assyria being this, they don't just take like this straight shot, like right in, because all of this is desert. What they would have done is they would have gone up to the north and then come down because that's where the trade routes were. That's where life was sustainable for them instead of traveling through the desert as an army. So they'd go up and around in an area that if you study the geography of it, it'll be called the Fertile Crescent. Well, let's zoom into this little area right here. It's hard to see on this map, but to the north, this is Israel. And all of these little pieces of color that you see are where the different 10 tribes of it, or 12 tribes of Israel settled. And the 10 northern tribes make up Israel as we're talking about it in this day after the kingdom was divided. And the two most northern tribes are the tribes of Naphtali and of Zebulun. These two northernmost tribes where the Assyrians are going to come in in 722 BC and conquer the land, the first place they get to is Naphtali and then Zebulun. So look again at verse 1. Isaiah says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. He's saying, Anguish is coming for Israel. Assyria is going to come and conquer them. It's not going to be good, but there's coming a day where there will be no more anguish for them. There will be no more anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. They were the first ones to take the brunt of the invasion from the Assyrians, right? Be like if we got invaded by Canada, Michigan would get it before we do. Zebulun and Naphtali got it before everybody else did. But, he says, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. See, that area between, if we go back to that map for just a second, this area over here on the side of Israel where the trade routes are, that was called the Via Maris or the way of the sea. And, and Isaiah says that God has made glorious the way of the sea. He's actually predicting this before it happens because they're about to be sacked by Assyria. And they're, they're going to be able to read this after they've been conquered and know God is going to make that way glorious again. He's going to restore his people to the land. In the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And in verse 2, he says this. 
The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Isaiah's words here are words of hope to people who are about to be sacked. And then for their, for after they've been taken into captivity, hope for them that they'll be restored. Isaiah says, a light has shone to those who dwelt in darkness, to those who faced the wrath of the conquerors of Assyria. And what you need to see here is that God's grace, because we find out at the end of it in chapter seven, in verse seven, the zeal of the Lord of hosts is the one who does this, that it's God's grace that would show this light. And God's grace, God shows grace to those in darkness, verses one through five. God shows grace to those in darkness. That's what he says in verse two, right? For the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Let me ask you, do you ever find yourself in a place of darkness? In a place where you feel like there's no hope? Maybe it's because of your own sin or because of something you've done. Maybe it's because of things that are totally out of your control and it's things that have happened to you or that happening around you. Maybe most of the time, maybe it's a combination of the two of things in your control and out of your control, but you find yourself in a place of darkness. You find yourself without hope. The people of Naphtali and Zebulun and all of the northern 10 tribes of Israel would have found themselves in this spot without hope in darkness. We read last week, and and if we'd have kept reading uh, in chapter 7 and into chapter 8, that the land would be so desolate after the Assyrians conquered them that even though there wouldn't be many cattle and wouldn't be much food, that the people who were left there would gorge themselves on the food that was left because everyone is going to be pulled out. And what's little there is going to be plenty for the few people left behind. They were in a time of great darkness. They were about to see everything they knew taken away. Everything at the discipline of God. They were going from gloom and despair See, that's what they were heading into. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. They were in anguish. They were in desperation. And really, as Isaiah is writing this, they're about to be. But there's coming a day where God would restore them. He says, you've shown a great light to those who have been in darkness. I would commend to you that God does the same thing for us today. And he does it as we repent and as we turn to Jesus. That as we turn to Christ, he shines light into the darkness of our world and the darkness of our hearts. And he makes us new. And look what else he does. He does this for the people of Israel and he does it for us through Jesus. See, verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You've multiplied the nation. So the nation gets exiled and now they're coming back and, and you've multiplied them. There's, you've shown grace to them. They haven't been totally destroyed. You've increased its, its joy. Not its sorrow, but its joy. And they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Isaiah's trying to communicate as best he can. The people are so excited because of God's grace. They're recognizing that it has nothing to do with them and that God has restored them. It has everything to do with God. And he's bringing great 
joy. And that's what he does in Jesus. That's what he does. Think of it as with at the harvest. The harvest goes well. You bring in the food. You've got enough to eat for the rest of the year until the next harvest. That's a time to rejoice. That's a time when they would have had festivals in Israel and praised God and rejoiced before him when the harvest came in. Maybe for you, it's like you would rejoice when you get your paycheck this week. Yes, I got another one. This is going to be a good week. I can eat. Or, or at the time when, when the warrior comes in and he takes the spoil after battle because he's won. And look at all the things that we get now. This is God's grace to them. And, and it causes joy. Does God's grace yield joy in your life? Now, let's be honest. It doesn't always yield happiness. Happiness is based on happenings. Joy is based on Jesus and what he's done for us and God's grace. And I can be joyful even when I'm not very happy. Amen? And he multiplies our joy. Well, look at Isaiah's prophesying to them. They're going to understand why. Here's Isaiah says why. Because the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you, God, you have broken as on the day of Midian. See, they're being taken away by someone with a yoke, with a great burden, the staff of oppressors, the rods of those who would, who would beat them into submission and pull them into exile. But there's rejoicing and joy because we find out, God, you have broken all those things just like you did at Midian. Do you have a question as you read that? God, you, you, they rejoice because you've broken all those things just like you did at Midian. I don't know about you, but when I read it, I go, well, what happened at Midian? What, what was the day of Midian? Well, it's easy to remember because it rhymes with Gideon. And it's the story of Gideon. Do you remember that guy? The young, mighty warrior. You can read about him in Judges chapters 7 and 8. And Gideon was, he was called, uh, let's see if I get this right, young warrior, mighty warrior, but he was likely the age of probably a junior high boy. And God calls him a great warrior. And Gideon goes and he conquers the Midianites and he does it in the most improbable way. When you read about it, you expect like first he recruits thousands and God whittles it down to where basically it gets down to where there's 300 of them and they don't charge in at battle. What do they do? They take jars with lights in them and they break them and make a ruckus all around the Midianites and Screaming and yelling and these 300, the Midianites just kill themselves. God did that. They didn't do anything. God showed them through, showed Gideon and showed the people that I'm going to win the battle for you. You're not going to do anything. Just do what I say. Stand still and watch as I deliver you. Isaiah is saying, listen, you're going to be delivered in the exact same way. Not because of anything you do, but just because of your faith, it's going to be because of everything God does to break the rod of the oppressor. God is going to be the one who delivers you. God is going to be the one who gives you salvation. Just as in the day of Midian, you have done it, Isaiah writes. To what extent did God do it? Well, look at verse 5. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. See, he's taking them from gloom and despair to joy and salvation. 
What he's saying there in verse 5 is that um, all the warrior's clothing, the boots for battle, the the army fatigues, we're not going to need them anymore because there's going to be peace. And we're just going to burn that for fuel, for the fire. No more war, no more peace. And God is the one who's going to do this. He's the one who's going to break the hand of the oppressor. That's God's grace. Now for us, how does this apply to us? Well, for us, we know that this light, because this passage is quoted in the New Testament referring to Jesus, this light for us is Jesus Christ. And he puts on flesh at Christmas and he steps down into his creation and the light shines in the dark and he brings salvation to us. Again, just like the Israelites, just like with Gideon, just like in the time after Isaiah when they returned, it's not because of anything we do. It's all because of God's action, because of Jesus stepping down, putting on flesh and stepping into human history to save us. If you don't believe me, Look at John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The first thing to see this morning is that God shows grace to those in darkness. Are you in a place of darkness? A place without hope? Maybe a place of sorrow? You need to know God's grace is sufficient for you, whatever your situation, whatever you're going through. And his grace, you need to know, number two, is found in Jesus. God's grace is in Jesus Christ. How do I know this? Well, look at verse six. Here Isaiah gets to prophesying about the future. He says, I mean, he already has been, but he especially looks forward to the coming of Jesus. For to us, a child is born. To us, he writes, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Look at that, the first line, for to us a child is born, a son is, what is it? Given. To us a child is born, to us a son is given. It's God's grace, he gives it to us. It's unmerited favor. It's getting what I don't deserve. It's getting salvation, it's getting restoration, it's getting to be made new, it's getting to be free from my sin. And it comes through a child, through the God-man, Jesus Christ. Let's look at that. A son is given, emphasis on the given. God's grace comes through Jesus Christ. God's grace does not come through sacraments. See, the church I grew up in, uh, that I grew up as a part of, I can remember very clearly as a boy, Uh, let me back up just a little bit. From first grade through eighth grade, every Thursday night, this church was out in the middle of the country, not unlike this one. And uh, as you would, you'd get on the bus, you'd ride out for confirmation class every Thursday night, all school year long. And I can remember very clearly one night as I was in a class with one of the pastors, 
that he said, this was so weird. I mean, he talked about how God's grace comes to us. And this one just sticks in my mind that if, if you have a friend and they're dying, baptize them so that they'll be saved. Baptism is considered a sacrament. In other words, it's, it, it's in, in our understanding, it's a sacrament in the sense that it, it reveals God's grace. It demonstrates his grace. It shows us. But in, in that church tradition, it was considered a means of grace, how God's grace is meted out to people. But you know what? God's grace is not in sacrament. It reveals it. It, it shows us his love. It's a symbol of it. But it, it's not the way we receive his grace. Some of us, maybe we've grown up in traditions like that where we've misunderstood it. God's grace is in Jesus Christ. It's also not in religion. God's grace to save you, getting what you don't deserve, doesn't come through just being a good enough person. Because then what? It's something you earned and you deserve it. God's grace doesn't come through religion. Religion says, if I do enough good things, God will love me and save me. When I get to the end of my life, if all the good things outweigh the bad things, I'm in. That's not taught in the Bible anywhere. God's grace doesn't come through religion. It doesn't come through human effort. It doesn't come through sacrament. It doesn't come through any of those things. God's grace is in Jesus. It's in Jesus. Born, a son is given. That's bolded in your outline, right? Underline it maybe in your text. Here's a couple other verses that speak of that. John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Loved ones, I... Again, I'd exhort you to believe the fact that God's grace comes through Jesus. It doesn't come through anything else. Do you want to be saved? It's all by God's grace in Jesus Christ. Have I said it enough? It's all by God's grace in Jesus. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Right? Would you agree? Kind of like Taco Bell doesn't, I say this all the time, like Taco Bell doesn't make you a chalupa. You go enough, you eat enough, you're going to look like a chalupa, you might smell like a chalupa, but you're not going to be one. You come to church, you go enough, you hear enough things, you quote enough right verses, you learn the lingo, you talk the talk, you sing the songs. That doesn't make you a Christian. God's grace makes you a Christian. It's when I repent. It has nothing to do with me other than I turn to Jesus. And I say, Jesus, I can't do it. There's nothing I can do. It's all because of you. It's all because of your grace. And that's how we're saved. It's all by God's grace to us. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Next week, we're going to come back to verses 6 and 7 and talk more about who Jesus is. But this morning, the last thing I want you to see about God's grace is number three. God's grace is without limit. It's without limit. Because here's the, here's the thing the enemy tries to lie to us with. He does to me, he does to you. He's an accuser. That's what his name means. Satan means accuser. And he accuses us. And what he says is something like this. Yeah, I know that you've repented. I know you turned from your sin and you turned to Jesus. And I know you've 
read that in the Bible where you're saved by uh, faith through grace alone, not by works. But I know you've heard that in church. I know you've sung those songs. I know that's what you think. But do you remember that thing you did? Do you remember that thing you still struggle with? Do you remember that? Well, if those things are true, then why that? And he accuses us day and night before the throne of grace, Revelation tells us. He accuses us and he says, no, you're really not a Christian because you, you've messed this up. You've messed this up. You've messed this up. There's no, yeah, maybe he did that, but you forfeited that long ago because of your sin. I want you to know God's grace is without limit. And not only that, because it's unmerited, you didn't do anything to earn God's favor from Jesus Christ. Guess what you also can't do? Anything to, to, neglate, to negate his grace to you in Jesus Christ. If you've received it as a gift and you did nothing to deserve it, you can't do anything to undeserve it. Does that work? Does that work? Do you know what I'm saying though? Jesus says, I know my sheep. I have them in my hand and not one of them will escape. It's my paraphrase of his words. But in other words, if he has you, he has you. And God's grace is limitless. It's enough to cover your sin. If you've truly repented, you've truly turned to him and received his grace. Look at verse seven. Of the increase of his government, Jesus' government, and of peace, of his peace, there will be no end. No end to his grace. No end to his peace. No end to what he accomplishes for us on the cross. That means there's nothing I can do to escape a place where Jesus would forgive me and restore me to saving faith. On the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it. See, he does it. And uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God will do it, not you. Loved ones, your salvation is not on you. It's on Jesus Christ and him alone. There's nothing you can add to it. There's nothing you can take away from it. It's all his grace. You're like, I've heard you say that before. I know, but if you're like me, we forget it and we try to earn it on our own. And you need to know it's all on Jesus. His grace is enough for you. There's nothing you've done that he wouldn't forgive other than not turning to Jesus. And it lasts forever. There's nothing that will ever separate you from his love and his grace in Jesus. See, there's coming a day, Revelation 22, verse 5, night will be no more. They'll need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. In other words, his people, the light of Jesus' face will shine and God's grace shines to those who are in darkness. It's in the person of Jesus Christ for unto us a son is born, a child is given, right? A child is born, a son is given and it'll last forever. It's limitless, without limit. And the big thing I want you to see as we close is that salvation for God's people in Israel in Isaiah chapter 9 and salvation to you and I through Jesus Christ, the one who would be born to a virgin, was God's idea. And he's the one who does it. If you get nothing else, get this this morning, that Jesus coming was God's idea. 
and that Jesus' desire to save you and to restore you is his idea and he will do it. It's not on you. It's on Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe me, let's close by looking at Ephesians chapter 2. Isaiah 9-7, the end of 9-7 says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, let's look in the New Testament at what Paul writes about Jesus accomplishing this. Maybe as we do that, we can open up some of those doors. It's getting a little toasty in here. Anybody else? Yeah, I can see you all nodding off and coughing. And maybe we'll prop those open and see if we can get a little cool air in here. This, i, I got to wake you up because this is important. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes this. And notice the parallels here between this and the story of the Israelites in the time of Isaiah where they were in a time of darkness. Once, Paul writes, you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You were dead. Think of the Israelites to whom Isaiah is prophesying. They've disobeyed God. They're dead men walking. (laughs) There's a conqueror coming from the north who's going to take them out. You and I, in our sin, when we're born, we are dead men walking, dead women walking. We may have life now, but there's coming a day of judgment, and there's coming a day to pay the penalty for sin and to be judged before an almighty God. Well, once you were dead because of all of us, your disobedience and your many sins. Verse 2, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. In other words, just like everybody used to live in sin at some point or or still does. Obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world, he's the spirit who's at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Those who would refuse to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Do you know who's behind it? Who they're truly devoted to is the enemy. The devil himself, Satan. Verse 3, all of us though, Lest you think that somehow you're better than somebody who hasn't repented yet. All of us, Paul writes, used to live that way. Following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. By your very nature, guys, gals, you're sinners. I'm a sinner. My mom and dad never had to teach me to say, no, I don't want to do that or to rebel, or to be disobedient as a child. It was, part, it was woven into who I am because I'm sinful. Every human being. By our very nature, we were subject then to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God, verse 4. But God, that's a big but in Scripture. But God is so rich in mercy to give us or to not give us what we do deserve, which is his wrath and his punishment. And he loved us so much. As we celebrated Advent this morning, we, wrote the, we lit the candle symbolizing God's love for us in Jesus Christ. That even though we were dead because of our sins, even though we were dead men walking, just like the Israelites in Isaiah's time, He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. It's all his gift. 
For he raised us from the dead with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all that he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Verses 8 and 9 are really the point of the whole passage. Paul writes, God saved you by his grace. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for it. This is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done so that none of us can boast about it. Loved ones, salvation is by God's grace and God's grace alone. And the only way we attain it is through faith, through believing, through turning from my sin and turning to Jesus. And God's grace comes to us through Jesus. To you, a child has been born, a son has been given so that you would trust him, turn to him, believe in him and be saved. If you've never done that, I would exhort you to do it today. And it's simply acknowledging in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confessing with your mouth that he is Lord, believing God raised him from the dead. Paul writes in Romans, and you will be saved. You're like, that's too simple. I know it's crazy simple because God did it all. It's the zeal of the Lord of hosts who will do this. Trust him if you haven't. Be reminded of his grace if you have. Let's pray. We'll take our offering and we'll sing. Remembering his grace. Father, thanks for Jesus. And thanks for your grace to us through him. Lord, I pray that um, for those who have never trusted you this morning, that today might be the day they would. That they'd recognize that all their striving, all of um, the things they've tried to do to earn your favor will never be enough and never have yet been enough. Because Jesus has already accomplished all of it. And they need simply turn to him and repent and trust him to be saved. It's by your grace that a son is given to us. And for those of us who have trusted you, Jesus, remind us again that you're the one who does it. That our responsibility is simply to obey and to follow, but that you love us the same today as you did yesterday and the same as you will tomorrow. And that it's because of that love then that we turn from our sin and continue to turn back to you. Thanks for Jesus and your great grace and mercy to us through him. Pray you'd remind us of all of that this season. We pray that through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.